Probably nearly every one of us have some object or piece of clothing or some decoration paying homage to the image of a cross. All of us probably have some shirt or something that we sit on the mantle or something we hang on the wall or something we dangle from our ears or hang around our neck that has some representation of the cross of Christ. In fact, virtually every church, most churches anyway, across our nation, around this world, decorate their churches with images of Christ inside and outside and on top and in every way that they can, exalting this image, which is, of course, so iconic of Christianity. We revere the cross, we honor the cross, and rightly so. But in doing that, sometimes we, we lose connection with what is originally, or what was originally, I should say, a symbol, not of honor and respect, but a symbol of shame and humiliation and reproach, which is what the cross was. It was a symbol of disgrace. It was a shameful symbol. It was thought to be a self-refuting symbol of defeat. D.A. Carson likens it today to taking our churches and painting murals across them of things like Auschwitz or Hiroshima. And you can imagine going around with images of, uh, of uh, mushroom clouds dangling from your earrings. Or really, even, I sometimes compare it to the concept of a lynching. And you can imagine going around with a t-shirt on, brandishing some image of a lynching as if that's a glorious and noble thing. Matter of fact, it is disgrace, disgraceful. Sometimes even though when I think about these concepts and trying to equate the shame and reproach of the cross from the first century to some image today, it's difficult because in so many of these cases, we still have sympathy for the victims of these crimes or the victims of these events. We still look at them as something that was regrettable and someone who suffered maybe unnecessarily in association with an atom bomb or association with a lynching. Maybe it would be better if we frame in our minds a cross and liken it to something like an electric chair. You can imagine the, the, the... response that you would get if you went around wearing a t-shirt with a picture of an electric chair across it? What would people think of you? What would people think the message that you're trying to communicate is? What would they think that you're trying to glorify? I mean, because in electric chairs, virtually everyone recognizes that the person going is, is typically deserving of the death because they've committed some sort of heinous thing they must have, otherwise they wouldn't have gone there, right? That's exactly the way people thought of the cross in the first century. And to lift up a cross and to speak about a cross and to exalt a cross, all of that stuff communicated something to the first century reader, the first century listener, something of reproach, something of rejection, something of shame, something of dishonor. This is what Paul says was the reaction to his preaching of the cross. It scandalized people. It was a scandalous thing to draw all this attention and to draw all this 
affection even, and to bring all this, all this honor to an image of such disgrace, they would think. What kind of people would do that? And it was an inescapable symbol and an inescapable message for Paul. He was committed, he says, to the preaching of the cross. The preaching of the cross. We have to understand, when he says that, he's talking about a message of staggering, staggering offense to so many people. This is what he refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, our passage that we return to this morning. We take, took note as we closed out last time, Paul's commitment in verse 17, saying, you know, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. Now, Paul basically has introduced this letter with a greeting to the Corinthians and addressing a report about some division, some quarrel that he had heard about in their midst. And it becomes apparent as you read through the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, 3, and 4, it becomes very apparent that what is at the heart of the divisions within this church are people who are claiming allegiance to a certain kind of wisdom. But it's a wisdom, as Paul will say, that's contrary to the cross. Contrary to... The wisdom of God. And so as Paul makes this statement in verse 17, he's compelled then to launch into really a long discussion outlining exactly why he is so committed to a symbol of such offense to the world around him. In verses 18, really all the way down through the end of the chapter, he presents a number of these reasons why he's committed to preaching only the foolishness of the message of the cross. Let me just begin our time by reading these verses for us. Verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us 
wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. A number of reasons why Paul says he committed to this message, why in spite of the offense and in spite of the uh, uh, the, the shame and reproach that's associated with it, while he would continue to preach exclusively the message of the cross, exclusively the wisdom of God. The first reason he gives for us in verse 18 is the power of this message, the power of the cross. The word of the cross, he says, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This word of the cross that he's talking about, of course, is the message about the substitutionary death of Christ. The fact that a Savior or, or, or a man, at least, at least in the eyes of the world, went to a cross as a substitute for those who are filled with guilt, for those who are filled with offense before God because of their sin... But it's this message or the means of this message, this word of the cross, that Paul knew God would save people. When he preaches the word of the cross, by the way, he's not talking about just the story. Don't confuse this. Don't think that Paul went around just telling the same story of the events that happened on the cross and describing somehow the gory details or any of that. It's not just the message, uh, excuse me, the story of the cross, not just the events, the historical fact of the cross. But more importantly, it was the profound implications. It was the significance of what the cross displayed. I mean, it displays the wrath of God against sin. The fact that He's so angry with the sin of man that He's willing to turn His back even on His own Son. It displays the level of love and tender kindness and mercy that God has towards sinners. That He wouldn't leave them stranded in their guilt, but He would send them a Savior. It puts on display those value-inverting messages, as some people refer to it. Messages like, uh, like the only pathway to victory is defeat. The only salvation is by declaring yourself worthy of hell. The only life that you'll ever find is by accepting the condemnation of death. That the only truth you'll ever know is by declaring your own foolishness. The only light you'll ever see is by recognizing your own blindness. This is the message of the cross. This is really what it represents in its fullness. And it flowed through everything that Paul preached. Everything he preached. As he says in chapter 2 verse 1, he decided to know nothing among them. Except this. It undergirded everything he had to say about salvation and everything he had to say about sanctification. It undergirded everything he had to say about living the Christian life, everything he had to say about family, everything he had to say about finances, everything he had to say about work, about joy, about contentment, about purpose. Everything Paul had to say, it flowed out of, or we should say through, the lens of the cross. He was committed to this alone. Now, like every faithful preacher, though, Paul realized that as he preached that message, that there would be two very, very different responses. Two very different responses. 
He says in verse 18 that for one group, the message would be foolishness. Those who are perishing, that is those who are still in their sin, those who aren't saved. They would hear this message and it would be utter foolishness to them. The word in Greek is moronos, from which we obviously get the word moron. It's what it is. This is the way the world sees it. It's moronic, foolish, nonsense, lacking in any kind of intellectual credibility, lacking in any kind of understanding. It's naive. It's mythical. Whatever you want to assign to it. This was largely the reaction of the Greeks with all their various philosophical systems of the day. They would hear the message of the cross and they would fundamentally reject it both in terms of a philosophy of life and in terms of a religion. I mean, it didn't meet their qualifications for anything valuable or worthwhile in either of those categories. It certainly didn't compute with their idea of the way life ought to be lived, and it didn't even match their idea of the way a God ought to behave. A true God, in their minds, was someone who would ex- exist above all the fray of the world and wouldn't mess himself up or shouldn't mess himself up with the affairs of men. Not a God who's worthwhile, at least. It was foolishness to them, even in our own day. Men and women all the time viewing God as basically nothing more than a psychological sedative. He is, at worst, a myth. At best, He's nothing more than an expression of your own personal spiritual reality. The way you personally see the world spiritually or whatever you personally think might be true or right, you're you're allowed to give expression to that as God. Nothing more. That's all it is. And it's certainly not a legitimate pathway of life. I mean, the pathway of life, any reasonable person, any knowing person knows that The pathway of life is one that guards your honor and seeks your comforts and goes after your success. It's one who understands that in order to get ahead in the world, you you can't expose yourself, you can't make yourself vulnerable, you certainly can't give yourself away to serving other people the way that the cross would demand. I mean, the message that you constantly receive from your culture, from your television, from Hollywood, from Wall Street, is that revenge is the pathway to go, that self-glory, self-honor, self-fulfillment, self-comfort, all of those things are the ones that drive life. Those are the ideals of the world around you. That's the way that if you're going to live a life that is meaningful and, and uh fulfilling, you're going to have to give yourself to stepping over people, stepping on people, running over people in order to get ahead. And any naive notion that a cross or the images of a cross or the laying down of your life or any of that stuff is the pathway to life and to getting ahead is absolutely naive. You can speak about it, but I'll have nothing to do with it. That's the, con- Excuse me, that's the uh, response of the world. But folks, listen to me. This is exactly what Paul preached. 
See, the world is happy enough to take your message of salvation as long as it doesn't come with a message of the cross. They're plenty happy to take your promise of heaven as long as it doesn't come with messages of rejection and ridicule and shame and hunger or whatever it might be. Now, this is exactly what was dividing the Corinthian church. When Paul says there are quarrels and fights among you, this is what was dividing the church, is that there were people in the church who were wanting to claim that gift of salvation. They were wanting to claim eternal life, but they were wanting nothing to do with the wisdom of God. They wanted to give their hearts and their lives to the wisdom of men. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because Paul very sarcastically We'll come back to this message and drive it home in verses 8 through 13 of chapter 4. This is what he says. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And I would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death. Because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and are buffeted and are homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we're riled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. We slander, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now you tell me the message that Paul preached. Because this is the message that he lived. This was no promise of eternal life along with all the goodies of this world. This wasn't a live however you want and God's going to take care of the rest. This wasn't a message of health, wealth, and prosperity for sure. This was a message of the cross. And it permeated everything that Paul preached and taught and espoused and lived and everything. And folks, when you do that, what you will hear from the folks around you is foolishness. That is foolishness, that is folly, that is naive, that doesn't understand the way things work. This is what people did when they responded to Paul's preaching. This is what they thought. They would hear the preaching of such a message and they would walk away and think, that's just just a bunch of naive trash. I mean, look at the people. Look at the people in it. I mean, how do they look? I mean, they're hungry and they're thirsty and they're poorly clothed and they're they're rejected and they're, they're all scouring of the world. I mean, just look at them. This is the thinking of the world. It's interesting though. Because Paul says there's a different response. Back over in chapter 1. There are some people who are sitting and listening to that message. And while everyone around them is rejecting it. They're zeroed in. And what they hear. Is the power of God. 
what they hear is the first thing that they've ever heard that can deal with the frustration and the futility of their life, that can deal with the guilt and the shame of their sin, that can deal with all the brokenness in their life, can deal with all the... uh, all the sense of helplessness that they have and being caught up in all the pain and suffering that's been brought on them because of all the foolish mistakes that they've made. What they hear is the pathway of salvation by the power of God. Paul understood this. I mean, any faithful preacher understands this. I mean, you stand up and you preach the message... And you have the same preacher, you have the same sermon, the same words, the same environment, the same uh, circumstances, the same air conditioning, the same seating. Everything's exactly the same. One person hears a message and says, that is rubbish. That's foolishness. And one person hears a message and says, God's power has just entered my life and changed me. Paul says, that's what I'm committed to. I'm going to preach this message because only it has the power to change people. You don't manipulate it. You don't add to it. You don't dilute it. You don't do anything to it because it has the power. And the people who are rejecting it are not evidence of its lack of power. Because someone is going to be struck to the heart with it. Someone's going to be changed Someone's going to find salvation. So what Paul's saying here is like, look, for me to spend my time with eloquent words of wisdom, for me to spend my time trying to oppress the people of the world, to find the respectability and the acclaim in the eyes of the world, for me to spend all my time doing that would be useless. To chase after recognition and acceptance and Respect would be a waste of time, Paul says. Because it would be setting aside the very thing that has the power to change the hearts of men. Well, that kind of brings us to the second reason that Paul lists here. The second reason why he would not set aside the preaching of the cross. Because of the poverty of human wisdom. I mean, the alternative, Paul says... The alternative is to turn yourself to something that in itself has utterly failed. He wouldn't preach with eloquent words of wisdom, rhetorical respectability or or learned knowledge or whatever it might be because God has condemned that kind of thinking. What does he say in verse 19? It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, it's not just that that worldly wisdom is useless. What he's saying is, is that there is a kind of wisdom which God actively opposes. You see? God has actively declared condemnation, he says, on a certain kind of wisdom. So why in the world would you want to incorporate something which God has set himself against into your message? Paul says, I wouldn't wouldn't replace the preaching of the word of God, the word of the cross, with eloquent words of wisdom, because God says he will destroy it. 
He will destroy it. By the way, I should be very clear. God's not opposed to learning. And God is not opposed to intelligence. God's not opposed to knowledge and He's not opposed to wisdom. He's opposed to the kind of wisdom that leaves God out of consideration. God's never put a premium on your ignorance and He's never put a premium on your simplicity and your naivety. He's never put a premium on on any of that kind of stuff and He doesn't put a premium on true foolishness. God has always exalted the the virtue of pursuing knowledge and pursuing wisdom and pursuing understanding. The whole book of Proverbs spells out that message. But what he's talking about is that knowledge which fundamentally is built on a foundation without any consideration for God. Now to drive home his point, Paul quotes from Isaiah 29. And I encourage you to turn over there with me. Isaiah 29. It's a passage where Isaiah comes with a prophecy to Israel at a time when Israel was very religious, but in fact, in their religion, they were doing nothing more than going through motions, mouthing words, but their hearts were far from God. At the very same time, they were facing a national ordeal unlike anything any of them had ever seen in their lifetime. A king from another country, a northern country, Assyria, a man named Sennacherib had encamped against them. He was threatening to invade their city, to take them all captive, to seize all the things that they own, to either take their life or to hold them in slavery for the remainder of their days. They were going to lose their freedoms, lose their possessions, lose their comfort, lose all their joy. And so they began to come up with schemes. They became, began to come up with, with uh, uh, methods and plans. They were going to compromise with this invader. They were going to bow down to his gods. They were going to pay tribute to him. They were going to give allegiance to him, that, which belonged only to God. They were going to do all of these things, which God had forbid them to do. And all these plans about how they were going to save themselves. And it all made rational sense to them. Exactly how it was going to work out. Well, this is exactly what God says He's going to destroy. This is exactly the kind of scheming and planning and human ingenuity that factors God out of the equation, which God says He hates. Isaiah 29, we can pick up reading in verse 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees and who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter regard, uh, be regarded as the clay? The thing you made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, 
He has no understanding. I mean, this is the audacity of these people. They go around, creeping around, taking the name of God on their lips while they're secretly living out some life in the darkness. And they've convinced themselves that God doesn't see that. That they can get away with that over and over again. And so consequently, when some trial and some ordeal comes in their life, they just move ahead assuming God doesn't see that as well. Who cares? God doesn't know. God doesn't understand. God's not going to do anything. This is the kind of wisdom, the kind of thinking, the kind of worldliness that the Lord despises. Thankfully, there was a godly king, a man named Hezekiah in Israel in these days who prayed to the Lord who found or sought I should say his answer and his help and his salvation from God who rejected the schemes of his advisors and his counselors and everyone around him and set his heart completely and solely on the Lord he cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent a single angel and in one night he slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians It doesn't make rational sense for sure. But it's something that the Lord's able to do, which the Lord did do. And He did it in order to thwart the wisdom of men. And Paul's whole point in quoting this passage is that men and women are inclined to try and solve their problems and fight their battles on their own ingenuity and in their own power. And when they do that, When men do that, when women do that, when churches do that, when Christian organizations do that, they are doing nothing more than giving lip service to the power of God, but they have sold their soul and their thinking to nothing more than worldly thinking. God's message through Isaiah was that He was going to work, but not through their schemes and techniques. In actuality, He was going to work totally apart from it. And He would accomplish something by His own power, and for his own glory. In fact, human ingenuity and methods only serve the purpose of hardening people's hearts more and more to God, of communicating the message that they don't need God. They can get along in the world just fine without him. That God is just some sort of some sort of myth, some sort of fable who's out there, some sort of maybe feel-good idea, but in the real practical matters of life, when you're really facing struggle and trial, you've got to turn to the world. That kind of thinking only hindered God's work. And this becomes, Paul says, back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this becomes one of the fundamental reasons why he would not set aside the simplicity of the message of the gospel. And, by the way, why he had no interest in mixing it or integrating it with the ideas of men. Because the wisdom of which Paul's speaking, the wisdom of the world, isn't complementary to the gospel, it is contradictory. It's fundamentally opposed to it. It's a bankrupt wisdom that comes from a bankrupt spiritual source, which is man. Now Paul drives home this Point by asking a series of questions in verse 20, which basically he offers as proof of what he's saying. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? 
Where is the debater of this age? Where are all the experts, he's basically saying, wise one? That would be anyone who is looked at as a leader, a scholar, an intellectual. Particularly, he names the scribe who would have been the expert within Jewish circles, the teacher of the law, the expert of the law. These were the scholars. These were the respectable men. These were the ones who gave leadership to society. And then he mentions the debater of this age. This refers to those those people within Greek society who would spar one another in in their, their philosophical schools who were trained in rhetoric and logic and were, had reputation sometimes because of their ability to rhetorically defeat their opponents in their daily debates. These were the oracles for the answers of life. And so Paul's question is, where are they? And he's not, by the way, asking for their physical location, though some of them no doubt that he's referring to are those who passed away long since gone. Maybe we read their works, but they've died like every other man. But more importantly, I think what Paul's asking is, where have they gotten us? Where have they gotten us? I mean, their, their philosophies and all of their learning are as transient as their own bodies. Already in Paul's day, centuries had passed They were full of nothing more than philosophical debate and scholarly wrangling among uh, Jewish leaders, even millennia, we might say. And all the world around Paul was full of sin and depravity and corruption and pain and suffering and problems. I mean, how much more, even in our own day, how how much more can we say the same thing? I mean, where has all of the thinking and all of the learning and all the advancement. Where has it gotten us? I mean, really, are we any closer today to solving the things that that men understand and realize plague us? Are we any closer to eradicating war and establishing peace? Are we any closer to dealing with things like crime and poverty and hunger or oppression? Are we any closer to eliminating immorality. I mean, all around us, we see people taking advantage of one another. We see people trafficking human beings. We see folks uh, exposing others to the shame and ridicule through a pornographic industry that constantly demeans others. I mean, we're more educated than we've ever been, and yet we're more immoral. We're more efficient than we've ever been, and we have greater means of helping people, and yet we're more selfish than we've ever been. We have greater means of communication than the world has ever known, and yet all it's doing is exposing how little we understand each other, sometimes even in our own homes. All of our advances in knowledge and technology and communication, have they really advanced us at all? In fact, all it's done is exposed the foolishness of man. All it's done is given greater vent to the depravity of the human heart. Given greater means for people to access the vulnerable and to take advantage of them and to foist upon them their leveraged interest loans or, or you know, oppressive financing or 
take advantage of the weak so that they are constantly under a load of, of recurring circumstances that are killing their homes, their families, and their lives. People have greater access to technology and they use it for sin. People have greatest, greater access to financing and they use it for greed. People have greater ability to travel and they don't use it to go to the places of the world that need them the most and help them. They use it for the sake of their own lust and desire. Greater access to medicine, but only to treat the onslaught of diseases that are brought by our own sin. You would think that we would be the healthiest generation ever. And yet year by year, what do we see? Rising rising rates of illness and disease. Epidemics. Why is it? With all this stuff, why is it that man can't solve his problems? Why is it that homes are just as broken, more broken than they've ever been? Why is it that people are more depressed than they've ever been? More uh, uh, full of anxiety than they've ever been? Why is it that people seem less content, although they have more than anyone's ever had? Why is it? Because man can't solve his problems if he won't recognize its source, which is sin. We're constantly told the modern wonders of our age and how we're to celebrate the advancement and freedom and the advance of technology and medicine and education. The society around us is always celebrating and, and pointing to these things as evidences of, of its progress. All the while... Ignoring the escalation and expansion of corruption, depravity, immorality. This is what Paul means at the end of verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I mean, in some ways, all God had to do is get out of the way. Just let man go his own way. And man exposes himself. He has exposed as foolish what they call wisdom. He's shown the world's wisdom to be foolish in that all their wisdom has failed in finding the very things they say they're after. It's failed in finding truth and more importantly, it's failed in finding God. And in fact, the very thing that they repeatedly reject as foolish, the preaching of the cross, this is the thing that God is using to save people and restore lives. This is the compelling case that Paul makes here. Men continually trying to figure out their own life, their own way. Where do they come from? Where are they going? What's it all about? In Paul's day, it was the Greeks who gave themselves to philosophy, the love of wisdom. That's what philosophy literally means. And their philosophical schools each would propose various meaning on life and relationships and purpose, and destiny, and values. Even in our own day, we don't necessarily call them philosophies. We have other names for them. 
But men still set up their systems, their human ways of thinking that, that talk about the pathways of life, the understanding of value, the understanding of meaning. People are still caught up with the admiration and worship of human opinion and human wisdom and human desires. And they make gods out of the study of education and economics and sociology and psychology. And by the way, that's not to say that there's absolutely nothing of benefit in any of those things. I mean, we all benefit to some extent from some of the advances in technology, even education, sociology. Many of these disciplines, as a matter of fact, when they apply good and sound scientific principles, they make accurate observations sometimes of behavior, not unlike what the Proverbs does in an infallible way whenever it just simply observes patterns of behavior in people and is able to, to, to warn you or give you heed in some areas. The problem, though, with modern fields like sociology, psychology, even in some sense, philosophical studies, the problem with all of them is that while they may identify some problems in man, they might even sometimes identify immediate causes. They can, they can re- recognize that the reason that you're feeling anxiety is because you had a falling out with someone. Where they fail is they never get to the root. They never can get past maybe the surface, the immediate They fundamentally refuse to acknowledge the root and the cause of man's problems is a depraved heart and a need for regeneration. And so no matter how much observation they make, no matter how many insights they believe that they gain, none of them will ever offer answers to man's problems because none of them will ever recognize the source of man's problems, which is sin. So like every other form of philosophy throughout the ages, these modern manifestations of humanistic thinking, these modern fields of study, see man and the world through the lens of human reason and human understanding. And so consequently, they reduce man's problems to that which is biological, that which is natural, that which is circumstantial. And so the best hope that they can offer you is some alteration of your chemical imbalance, some alteration of your circumstantial uh, uh, surroundings, some manipulation of the environment in which you're in. But they never really can get to the heart of the problem. But the Bible's clear. The heart of all man's problems, mental, social, economic, certainly spiritual, and even physical, is sin. That's the message of the Scripture. That's the message of the cross. That's what the world finds foolish, unlearned, naive, and dangerous. A true understanding of sin is completely outside the realm of fields like psychology and sociology, humanistic philosophy. And even if they did reach the point where they acknowledge some concept of sin, they have nothing that they can do about it. Because they have no power to change people. (coughs) 
Consequently, what you find in psychology, sociology, economics, education, politics, any of the humanistic fields of study today, all you'll find is the constant spending of their time trying to cope with the consequences of sin. I mean, at a public level, they're attempting to deal with sins without calling them sins. At an individual level, they're attempting to deal with guilt without calling it guilt. Nevertheless, men continue to try to find their salvation in their own wisdom. Well, Paul understood, like every faithful preacher understands, that only Christ can remove your guilt. And only Christ can deal with your sin. And only Christ can get to the root problem of what your problem is. And this is what he preached. Sad reality is to see so many Christians following in the same pathway of Israel in Hezekiah's day. They have gotten to the point where all they do is mouth words about God's power and God's sufficiency, but they run off and they follow the same paths of worldly wisdom that everyone around them follows. They believe in the same fundamentally humanistic, naturalistic, purely biological sense of the world, and they follow after that, and they never really look at God as a true means of dealing with the problems of life that they're in. The problems in their relationships, the problems in their own heart, their own mind, their own anxieties, their own depression. And so they seek to add human ideas, human insights to the wisdom of God. It's a futile quest. All fueled by the idea that somehow the cross is insufficient. It's insufficient to transform. It's insufficient to sanctify. It's insufficient to equip the Christian for living. Paul rejected all this. He says, I reject it because all that other stuff doesn't have the power that the cross has. And I reject it because God himself says he will destroy it. God himself says he set himself against it. So why in the world would I ever give my ministry to it? Well, Paul has other reasons here. He lists for us going all the way through the rest of this chapter. And we'll give our time and our hearts to it next week. I want to just say to you this morning, if you're with us, and maybe for the first time, maybe you've been visiting a little bit, But you've been dealing with these problems. You've been dealing with the frustration. You've been dealing with the vanity. You've been dealing with the guilt. And you're looking all around you at all the answers that the world's throwing at you and you have tasted the futility that Paul's talking about. Where has all of it gotten you? Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the scribe? Where are they? They're wrapped up in the same kind of futility that you're in if they don't know the cross. So our challenge to you today is that you wouldn't leave here without experiencing the power of the cross. The message we preach indeed will be called foolishness by men. But it's the only thing that will save you. It's the only thing that will transform you. Our encouragement to you is that you wouldn't leave today 
without coming to see me, without coming to see one of our pastors, we'd love to show you from the scripture how you can know Christ, have your sins removed, your guilt washed away, and find eternal life. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Actually, Darby is going to come lead us as we close. Let me pray for us while musicians make their way up. Father, we're grateful today. That you caught us in our darkness and our blindness and our foolishness. You brought us to the place of light and truth. We're thankful that we weren't in a pit from which we had to climb out by our own devices. Because Lord, trying that path, we failed over and over again. And Lord, we know that there is constantly around us a ridicule of the cross a thinking that it comes across as naive and foolish, but we know by personal experience its power. Guard our hearts then from ever turning away from it, from ever being dissatisfied with it. For it alone is the power of God for salvation, for sanctification, unto your glory. We pray all these things to that end and that purpose. Amen.